Hello, my name is Richard Fern of the University of Warwick. I'm joined today by Professor Wynne Grant of the University of Warwick's Department of Politics and International Studies. The professor is an expert on British politics, and today we're here to discuss the, uh, the handover of power from Tony Blair to whoever comes next in the Labour Party. So, Professor, when will Tony Blair stand down? Well, I think Tony Blair originally hoped that he would be able to go on to 2008, that he would have time to pursue his agenda of modernising the the public services um, and also to get towards some sort of resolution of the situation in Iraq, Afghanistan and so on. But I think over the past few months, um, his position within the Labour Party has been eroded to quite some extent and it may well be that he will now go in 2007 possibly after he's completed a longer term in office than Margaret Thatcher, which would mean the the autumn of 2007. So what's changed? Well, I think over time um, there's been a build-up of increasing resentment towards some of his policies um, within the Labour Party and and within the Parliamentary Labour Party in particular. I think there is a perception um, that in his relationship with the United States... Uh, he's been too uh, subservient to the American position. That is not, of course, the way he would see it. He would say that he was engaged in a crusade with the Americans um, against terrorism. But I think in particular, the events surrounding the recent war in the Middle East, in Lebanon, have done a great deal to erode his position. Because I think there was a perception that, again, Britain was too close to the Americans, was too reluctant to be critical of the way in which um, the Israelis dealt with the threat that was coming from Hezbollah in in Lebanon. Uh, And so even people who were traditionally seen as Blairites uh, became somewhat critical of his policies as a consequence of that. Are we going to be looking at a Night of the Long Knives, uh, the equivalent of of Margaret Thatcher's departure? Well, it's very difficult under the Labour Party's mechanisms to actually evict him from office... Um, and I don't think that most people in the Parliamentary Labour Party would want to split the party in that kind of way and give an electoral benefit to the Conservatives. But what is the case, I think, is that he's going to face a particularly difficult Labour Party conference, um, that there will be an expectation that he will give some indication of when he might leave office, the so-called timetable, but he might be reluctant to do that. So one could then see quite a turbulent conference which will be quite damaging to him. But I think essentially he will go at a time of his own choosing, but to some extent that choice will be influenced by the pressures that are coming on him from within the Parliamentary Labour Party. When Margaret Thatcher was ousted, we saw a movement from one leader to the next. Mm. I think most members of the public couldn't actually remember the order in which the next Conservative leaders came, but there seemed to be quite a few of them. And then finally it was over. Can you foresee a similar thing happening with the Labour Party? Tony Blair goes, nobody ever replaces him. Well, he's difficult to replace, but I think slightly different circumstances in the Conservative Party in in the early 1990s. Um, They had the exchange rate mechanism crisis, which was very damaging to their credibility as an economic manager, and they've, in fact, really never fully recovered from that. And, of course, they had these very deep divisions uh, within the Conservative Party over Europe. So John Major was faced with this position of having to stand again for the leadership to try and reassert his authority, and that really wasn't a very successful manoeuvre. And then, of course, we had a succession of leaders. Um, I mean, again, partly 
chance played a part. I mean, if Michael Portillo had not been um, defeated somewhat unexpectedly in 1997, then he would have probably become leader of the Conservative Party, and I think events might have taken a rather different course, that he would have remained leader for uh, a longer period of time. But it has been difficult for the Conservatives to adjust to the post-Thatcher era, because in a sense, Thatcher's objectives were achieved, and then the question was, where do you go from there? I think for Labour... They still have an unfinished agenda in terms of modernising uh, the country and in terms of improving the delivery of public services. So there is still a lot to do. Who are the key players here? Well, I think the key players in terms of, if one's looking at successors, um, then clearly one's looking at people like Gordon Brown, who's been waiting for so long um, to become Prime Minister, and of course that has been an often turbulent relationship between him and Tony Blair. Um, clearly, within the, within the Parliamentary Labour Party, one is talking about people like the Chief Whip and so on, who will convey um, the opinions from within the party to the Prime Minister. Who else is in the picture? Well, if one's looking at uh, contenders for the leadership, then, of course, um, uh, there's been recent speculation about the position of Dr Reid, the Home Secretary. Um, Another possible candidate is Alan Johnson. There's already one candidate that has declared from the left of the party, uh, and there may be others who who come along and perhaps mount a more convincing challenge from the left, although a candidate from the left is unlikely to be successful in any leadership contest. John Reid has had an interesting couple of weeks. How's his, how's his CV looking now? Well, of course, he's, he's held a whole succession of ministerial posts because often he's been put into positions by Tony Blair to sort out ministries where it's perceived that there have been problems. So in that sense, he has a great deal of experience. He's also, of course, been able to come across, in terms of the recent um, a terrorist crisis, as a very calm, authoritative person, which no doubt reflects his personal characteristics. But, of course, being Home Secretary is something of a poison chalice. And you may be able to cope very well with one crisis, but then, you know, a few weeks or months later, another crisis could blow up, you could have a riot in a prison, something which is potentially more difficult to handle. There's, there's the prospect of a strike by prison officers. These situations are much more difficult to handle. So, often, a Home Secretary can deal very well with one situation, but then another situation can come along, and through no fault of his own... That is inherently much more difficult to deal with. So the other players, Alan Johnson. Well, Alan Johnson is um, a well-regarded minister. I think it was perceived that he did an effective job in his uh, previous post in education, um, that he's um, done a, a good job in work and, and pensions at the moment. Um, he's a person who has a lot of support from the trade unions, who are a very important constituency, in the Electoral College um, for the party. Um, he's seen as someone who has links with um, traditional uh, Labour support. I mean, it's very difficult to see him emerging as a winner, except in a situation where there was a deadlock between other leading candidates. But, of course, for someone like that, it's often a good idea to c contend um, such a contest because it puts down a marker for the future. It suggests that you are a potential leader, and even if you're not successful this time, it's possible that you will be successful on some subsequent occasion. Would it also be true to say that a person who is able to contest the leadership effectively becomes more powerful within the party 
even as not being the leader because they then have more counters to bring to the table. Oh, I think that's undoubtedly the case. I think, for example, um, Jim Callaghan built his career by unsuccessfully contesting the leadership in the first instance and coming third. So it raises your profile within the party. There's then some sort of obligation on the new Prime Minister to give you a, a very responsible job. So, you know, Alan Johnson might be in line then for a much more high-profile job if he, if he contested the leadership election and did reasonably well. So it's often a good strategy for someone who perhaps is not going to become the leader but wishes to put down some sort of marker for the future. Those are either to the right of the party mm. or they're centralists within mm. the party. Let's look at the left-wing challengers. Who would they be? Well, one there's already been one person who has declared, John MacDonald. I mean, he would not be thought of as a particularly high-profile candidate, but what he said was that he wanted there to be a contest for the leadership of the party. It shouldn't just be a coronation. It may be that he would step aside and someone else would um, come forward and be a left-wing candidate. But, of course, some of the more high-profile um, left-wingers in the party, people like Claire Short, are really very controversial individuals, even on the left, and might not command widespread support. So it's quite difficult for people on the left to come up with a candidate who has a reasonably high profile and yet um, also would enjoy uh, a reasonable base of support within the Parliamentary Labour Party. Isn't that part of the problem, that in fact Tony Blair has been uh, such a, a strong leader that in fact there is nobody there of his stature and calibre? Well, he's certainly been um, a very dominant leader and of course the expectation for a very long time uh, has been that Gordon Brown uh, will succeed him and indeed that is still the most likely outcome but I think it is the case that we are now going to have more of a contest than we might have anticipated um, you know, six months or a year ago that is going to be um, quite a serious contest for the Labour Party but yes, I mean, Tony Blair is effectively the architect of New Labour he won them their victory in 1997 he won two subsequent elections which is a you know, record that no Labour Prime Minister in the past has um, achieved Harold Wilson was a very successful, but he didn't win elections in a row in the way that Tony Blair has. Looking into our crystal ball for a moment, Tony Blair announces soon that he is to stand down in, in approximately a year. What is the future of the Labour Party post-Tony Blair? Well, I think Tony Blair is going to be very cautious about actually announcing when he's going to go, because this would make him more of a lame duck than he is at the moment. But let, let's assume that Gordon Brown does become a leader in about a year's time. I think the first thing we have to recognise is that there is not a great ideological difference between Gordon Brown and Tony Blair. Yes, there are differences of, of style. Gordon Brown um, comes from a, a very traditional Scottish background in the Manse, and that's reflected in his personality. I think he's more of an intellectual than Tony Blair, who's very much moulded by his background as a lawyer. Um, but, of course, Gordon Brown fully signed up to the modernisation agenda. He worked very closely with Tony Blair on that agenda, and, of course, originally they had to make a decision about which of the two of them should run. So I don't think he's ideologically that different from Tony Blair. It may be that he places greater emphasis on the redistribution of income through the tax and benefit system, um, he's put a lot of work into the tax credits given to working families. Now, I'm not saying Tony Blair is opposed to that. Uh, I don't think he is, but I don't think he's quite got the enthusiasm. And it's, it's interesting that Stephen Byers 
over the weekend, Stephen Byers' well-known Blairite, made a speech which trailed the possibility of abolishing inheritance tax, which is the kind of Middle England issue um, which you know gets a lot of publicity in newspapers like the Daily Mail. And, and Tony Blair has always been very concerned about this Middle England, middle-class vote. I can't see um, Gordon Brown signing up to any kind of agenda which involved the abolition or even a substantial reduction in the thresholds for inheritance tax. Um, but of course, you know, if Gordon Brown comes in, he will be able to take a fresh look at everything. He will particularly, I think, want to take a fresh look at the foreign policy stance of the United Kingdom. Although it should be remembered that historically he is someone who's had very close links with the United States. Um, he used to spend his holidays regularly on Cape Cod, meeting American intellectuals, and got a lot of his ideas for New Labour from people associated with the Clinton administration. So, looking to the future, what are Labour's long-term prospects? Well, I think it becomes more and more difficult for a government uh, when they've been in office for a long period of time. There are various groups in the population who they've offended in the course of pursuing their policies and who build up resentments against them. Uh, over time, perhaps a government can come to see, be seen as a little bit tired. Um, there are issues of sleaze, which perhaps tend to be raised rather more um, as a government goes on in, in its life. And, of course, Labour has benefited um, from the way in which um, electoral constituencies have been set up. There has been an inbuilt bias in the electoral system towards um, new Labour, and some of the redistricting that is going to take place before the next election uh, will actually uh, remove, um, to some extent, not entirely, but will reduce um, that advantage that New Labour uh, has enjoyed in the past. Now, of course, I think it is generally said that, that governments lose elections rather than oppositions winning them. Because the greatest threat, I think, always to any government is a serious downturn in um, the economy. We've had a very um, strong period of economic growth and increased prosperity since um, 1997. That's partly because of world conditions as much as anything to do with the way in which um, the government has organised its economic policies. And, of course, as a consequence, economic policy has tended to fall off the radar to some extent. But if, of course, the economy did enter a, dern uh, a downturn, then it would be a different picture. And, of course, we've got a slightly paradoxical picture at the moment where we've got employment has been rising because older people have been staying in the workforce longer. We've had a lot of immigration into the UK from uh, the Eastern European parts of the, the European Union, and at the same time unemployment has been uh, rising, because people in the UK have found it difficult, to, in some cases, to get jobs. Now, that's probably not the key consideration, though the key consideration in a sense is what happens to interest rates, which of course is nothing to do with the government, it's a decision of the, the Bank of England, and it's possible the interest rates will go up again to 5% at some point in the autumn. And this is a very fine balance, because if those rate rises started to affect consumer spending, and if in particular they started to affect the housing market, um, then the consequences of this in terms of economic confidence and people's perceptions of their prosperity might be very serious. I mean, one of the underlying problems is that the present consumer boom has been built to a very large extent on a mountain of personal debt and we've seen the number of insolvencies rising. So it wouldn't take a great deal um, for 
things to go wrong and for people to find that their economic circumstances were much less favourable and that would I think be very damaging to the government. I think there are also questions about public services that the government has poured a lot of money into the national health service, a huge increase in national health service spending yet of course the demands that are made on the national health service rise all the time. We have an ageing population, we have advances in medical technology which make new kinds of cures and treatments possible and of course we have single interest pressure groups who are advancing the case of people who are suffering from a particular disease and, and demanding quite understandably that they should get the, the best possible treatment. So we're really in a situation now where the National Health Service budget can't go on expanding in the way that it has done and of course this inevitably will mean, and we've certainly seen this in particular localities, some cutbacks in the level of service. I mean, it may well be that the district general hospital model is not appropriate, given that it's better to treat people with particular illnesses in hospitals where there's a concentration of specialism on that illness, and of course it's possible now to to perform many more minor procedures in the community. But I think when people see district general hospitals being closed or run down, this is something they're very sensitive about. And in a sense, public services has been the, the strong card of the Labour Party in relation to the Conservatives and indeed to the Liberal Democrats as well. Um, and there has been some recent research published in the journal British Politics which suggests that public sector workers who have tended to support Labour more than the Conservatives, even if they're in uh, non-manual jobs, particularly in the last uh, three elections, may become be becoming increasingly disillusioned with the Labour Party. Uh, that, that group of people who have been a, a bulwark of support for the Labour Party be, because morale in the public sector is low, because public sector wages are being held back now rather more than they were, because there are, there are job cuts, because of all the work that's associated with performance indicators, this basis of support for the Labour Party uh, may now be eroding. That's interesting because you see you're foreseeing a defection of traditional Labour supporters. But who are they going to defect to? Well, I think we saw some defection actually in the last two elections because what some people defected to was simply to not voting. You know, the traditional Labour voters simply didn't turn out and vote and that was reflected in a fall in turnout. There are other options available for them. I mean, they, they can obviously vote for the Liberal Democrats, and the Liberal Democrats did garner some support from disillusioned Labour supporters. And, of course, there are other parties, such as the Greens, that they can go and vote for. Now, I'm not saying, of course, there's going to be a massive movement away from the Labour Party, because clearly people can express dissatisfaction mid-term. But when it comes to being faced between the choice between a Conservative and a Labour government, which will be the effective choice, although the result could well be a hung parliament, then, of course, this does tend to have an effect of perhaps concentrating people's minds, so they might uh, vote in a dissenting way in local government elections, by-elections. When it comes to the general election, uh, they make their choice in a rather different way. Do you think that when the history books look back, Tony Blair's legacy will be as great as Margaret Thatcher's? Well, Margaret Thatcher brought about a, a substantial transformation in British politics, and indeed Tony Blair has to a large extent built on her legacy and, and has operated within the framework of values that she established. I mean, she substantially weakened the, the trade unions, which up to then had been a major force in British politics. She um, privatised the nationalised industries, which again had been a major economic and political force in the United Kingdom. 
and she got rid of the old-style industrial policies, the old style of tripartite consultation with the CBI and the TUC, um, and made the economy much more market-oriented in the way in which it operated. And, I mean, you know, Tony Blair has not thrown away those values. He hasn't renationalized anything. He hasn't been keen for the trade unions to have a key role um, in decision-making, and he's been very much someone who's believed in the market economy. So the legacy that she left was... Um, a very substantial. I mean, obviously, towards the end of her period in office, she started to do things which were less popular and less well thought out, like the council tax. And, of course, the whole question of Europe was a, was a major issue for her. Tony Blair possibly hasn't achieved some of the things he would have wanted to achieve. I mean, you know, he wanted to Britain to be much more at the heart of the European Union. He hasn't succeeded in that. He's had to accept, effectively, that Britain isn't going to join the euro in the foreseeable future, probably not for 10 years, if at all. So there have been a number of disappointments, and I think he might also feel that he's not been able to achieve as much in terms of the modernisation of public services um, as he would have liked to. So, in a sense, I think his legacy is going to be a, a somewhat more ambiguous one than that of Margaret Thatcher, which you know, she brought about very substantial changes, which in, a, in effect are irreversible changes. And, in a sense, Tony Blair has continued within that tradition, but has sort of modernised it and has seen a more positive role for the public sector. Professor Wingrad, thank you very much indeed.